Welcome to episode six of Bookmarked. Today I'll be going over the book Steve Jobs, a biography written by Walter Isaacson. This book focuses on the life of Steve Jobs and the totality of his life, all the way from the beginning of his upbringing to his trips to India that helped shape his worldview, from eventually starting Apple and getting kicked out, to rejoining again and making it one of the greatest companies in the world, and to eventually when he passes away from cancer. I'll do my best to summarize an information-packed book with 42 chapters as best as I can. Just for some background on the author, Walter Isaacson is an American biographer, journalist, writer that is best known for his best-selling biographies of famous figures such as Leonardo da Vinci, Steve Jobs, Albert Einstein, and Benjamin Franklin. He's also written books on digital technology and worked as a journalist for the Sunday Times of London and Time magazine. Additionally, Isaacson served as CEO of CNN and chairman of the Broadcasting Board of Governors. Introduction Summary Isaacson begins the book by recounting how Jobs had reached out to him initially in 2004, requesting that he write his biography. At that time, Isaacson felt hesitant to take on the task, given his history of alternating between success and failure. However, after Jobs fell ill with cancer for a second time, Isaacson finally agreed. Over the course of two years and more than 40 interviews and conversations with those close to Steve and Steve himself, Isaac set out to create a book that would capture the essence of Jobs' life with a focus on the lessons he had learned about innovation, character, leadership, and values. Chapter 1. Abandoned and Chosen Chapter 1 highlights the contrasting stories of two sets of parents in Jobs' life. His birth parents, Joanne Seibel and Abdufate Jadali, were unable to keep him due to their societal pressures at the time, and arranged for a closed adoption with the condition that his adoptive parents must be college graduates. Claire and Paul Jobs, who adopted him, were not college graduates, but were dedicated and hardworking parents who provided Jobs with the best possible upbringing. They were honest with him about his adoption and made sure he knew he was special because they had chosen him. As a child, Jobs really struggled in school, but found his passion for electronics and mechanics through his father, who fixed up cars, and through the nearby Hewlett Packard Explorers Club. Growing up in Silicon Valley during the advent of computers, Jobs was fascinated by their development, and this helped shape his entire future endeavor. He grew up in an age when computers were being created and developed all around him. Chapter 2. Odd Couple, Two Steves. In this chapter, we delve into the dynamic between Jobs and Steve Wozniak, who was five years older than Jobs. The two first crossed paths in a friend's garage where they bonded over their shared interests. They began collaborating on a project called Blue Box, which enabled people to make long-distance phone calls for free. Initially created as a joke, they eventually began selling Blue Boxes for $150 each, marking the start of their first business partnership. However, things took a scary turn when one of their Blue Boxes was stolen at gunpoint in a pizza parlor in sunny, uh, Sunnyvale, California. Despite this frightening experience, Jobs and Wozniak would continue their work together for years to come. In fact, Jobs himself later remarked that, and I quote, if it hadn't been for blue boxes, there wouldn't have been an apple, underscoring the significance of their early collaboration and shaping the course of their future endeavors. Chapter 3. The Dropout, Turn On, Turn In. In Chapter 3, we get a look into Jobs' early relationships and experiences at Reed College. As he transitioned into college, Jobs, like many young adults trying to find their way, uh, changed his personalities in between charming and a really charismatic person to be around 
to a really unsettling individual and no one who uh, wanted to be around him. Prior to college, Jobs became involved with Chrisanne Brunan, a fellow acid enthusiast, and they even shared a cabin together after their high school graduation. While at Reed College, Jobs grew really bored and dropped out only after one year of attending. However, he was allowed to audit courses that interested him, such as calligraphy. During this time, he also met Robert Friedland, who initially fascinated him with his interest in Eastern spirituality, but who Jobs later dismissed as a selfish fraud. Chapter 4, Atari in India, Zen and the Art of Game Design. Steve Jobs returned to his parents' home in Los Altos after dropping out of college and began searching for a job. He boldly walked into the office of the video game manufacturer Atari and demanded employment. Impressed by his audacity, the chief engineer, Al Acorn, hired Jobs as a technician, making him one of the first 50 employees at Atari. However, his colleagues were put off by his behavior and lack of hygiene. After a few months at Atari, Jobs went to India with his friend Daniel to seek spiritual enlightenment. He returned to Atari later and was challenged by the head of Atari, Nolan Bushnell, to develop a one-player version of Pong. Jobs uh, eventually had to recruit Steve Wozniak, who was working at a nearby Hewlett Packard to help him. They completed the game in just four days, and Jobs received a bonus from Bushnell. However, he only paid Wozniak half of the agreed-upon fee, which Wozniak was disappointed by later in life, in which Jobs would have been honest with him about needing the money. Chapter 5. Apple 1. Turn on. Boot up. Jack in. Chapter 5 recounts the origin story of Apple. As the computer industry was rapidly growing in Silicon Valley, Steve Wozniak, a computer enthusiast, attended a gathering where he saw a microprocessor for the first time, and this sparked the idea of the personal computer in his mind. This event became a pivotal moment in his life, and Wozniak then created the Apple One computer with the initial intention of freely sharing the designs in line with the hacker ethic. However, Steve Jobs convinced him to sell them, and thus began the formation of Apple computers. The company was named after Jobs returned home from an apple orchard, and after selling more than 100 computers, it became profitable within 30 days, foreshadowing its future success. Chapter 6. The Apple II, The Dawn of a New Age After experiencing initial success, Jobs realized that the next computer release, the Apple II, needed to be transformed into a fully integrated consumer product. To help with the finance and distribution, he brought in Mark Malarka, an outside investor who put in $91,000 into the company and was able to get an additional $250,000 line of credit from Bank of America. This funding proved to be a highly successful move for Apple, and the Apple II went on to sell over 6 million units and is credited by many as launching the personal computer industry more than any other machine. With Wozniak providing the technical experience, Jobs incorporated his own ideas about the consumer experience from product design and successfully created a company that combined both aspects. Chapter 7, Chrisan and Lisa, He Who Is Abandoned. When Chrisan and Jobs were living together in a house with their close friend, uh, Daniel, the relationship took a complicated turn as Chrisan became pregnant with Jobs' child. Despite Apple gaining traction as a successful company, Jobs refused to acknowledge that he was the father, even going as far as to insinuate that Chrisan had slept with someone else. This caused the relationship to ultimately fall apart, leaving Chrisan and Lisa uh, his daughter, on their own. Eventually, after taking a pregnancy test, Jobs reluctantly began supporting and providing child support to Lisa and, uh, Lisa 
but not before putting up a fight. It wasn't until later in life that Jobs expressed remorse for the way he behaved during this, this time, showing a deeper level of self-reflection and humility. The complexities of relationships and fatherhood are never easy, and it's ultimately a testament to Jobs' growth as a person that he was able to come to terms with his own mistakes and try to make amends to Lisa over time. Chapter 8. Xerox and Lisa? Graphical User Interfaces After basking in the glory of the successful Apple II launch, Jobs was resolute in his new pursuit to develop a distinctive product that would submit his legacy at Apple. Despite his invaluable contribution to the Apple II, he felt it would always be overshadowed by Wozniak's brilliance. Determined to create a new computer that would be uniquely his, Jobs was heavily involved in the development of the Apple III, which ultimately did not meet the expected success. Not one to be deterred, Jobs set his sights on the Lisa, which he surprisingly named after his own daughter, whom he had previously neglected. Drawing inspiration from the Xerox, which was at the time the forefront of technology innovations such as the graphical user interface, or GUI uh, in shorthand, Jobs incorporated the GUI into Lisa alongside the modern computer mouse. Although Jobs poured his heart and soul into the Lisa project, his efforts were not appreciated by the Apple's management as they stripped him of his managerial duties and leaving him with a random title of non-executive chairman of the board. This was a huge blow to Jobs at the time, and it marked the beginning of many instances where he felt betrayed by the company. Despite the setback, Jobs remained undaunted in his quest to create a revolutionary product that would hopefully change the world. Chapter 9. Going Public, A Man of Wealth and Fame Despite the wealth that came with Apple's success, Jobs remained conflicted about money and material possessions. His complex relationship with wealth and consumer objects is a testament to his unique character and philosophy. Although he appreciated certain high-end consumer goods, Jobs was known for his minimalistic style and often wore the same outfit every day to simplify his decision-making process. The initial success of Apple's IPO propelled Jobs into the stratosphere of wealth and power. His net worth eventually skyrocketed to $256 million, at the time an astronomical sum for someone who was so young. However, Jobs' behavior towards his earliest employees was not always the same. He, was famously, he famously cut out many of the earliest employees from having stock options, a move that wouldn't go well-perceived by others in the building and all around him. This was a stark contract to Wozniak, who generously gifted a significant number of his shares to the same people and early employees whom he believed Jobs had overlooked and didn't treat right. Chapter 10. The Mac is Born? You Say You Want a Revolution. In this chapter, we get some context and attention to the inception of the Macintosh computer, which was initially overseen by Jeff Raskin. Raskin had been brought on by Jobs to write a manual for the Apple II. However, Jobs eventually took over the project, which led to Raskin's uh, eventual departure from the, from the company. The Macintosh, named after Raskin's preferred Apple, revolutionized personal computing and contributed to Jobs' growing influence in the tech industry. Chapter 11 the reality distortion field, playing by his own set of rules. In chapter 11, we really get a deep dive into Jobs' famous, or infamous, reality distortion field, a term coined by his colleagues to describe Jobs' ability to distort reality to fit his own needs and desires. According to those around him, Jobs' belief that the rules didn't apply to him was the root of his own phenomenon. Jobs had always been told he was special, chosen to find his place amongst the world's greatest minds like Albert Einstein and Gandhi. 
colleagues also criticized Jobs for viewing the world in an overly simplistic, binary way and for taking credit of others' ideas. Despite these many flaws, many of his colleagues remained inspired and energized by his leadership at Apple. Chapter 12, The Design, Real Artists Simplify. Chapter 12 delves deeply into Jobs' unyielding pursuit of design excellence, which he strived to infuse in every single aspect of the Macintosh project. Jobs' obsession with perfection is clearly evident in the attention he paid to the smallest details of the design process. According to Isaacson, Jobs believed that, and I quote, design simplicity should be linked to making products easy to use, and he was unwavering in his commitment to optimizing the customer experience. Jobs did not just want to make his products functional, he wanted them to be intuitive and aesthetically pleasing. He pushed his engineers to see themselves as artists and craftsmen who could create products that were not only technically sound, but also visually appealing. Jobs firmly believed that good design was essential to the success of any product, and he was willing to go to great lengths to ensure that his products were both meaningfully uh, built and beautifully aesthetically. As a testament to his unwavering belief in the importance of design, Jobs had all of the members of the Macintosh team engrave their names into every Macintosh produced in a manner similar to artists signing off their work. This gesture symbolized Jobs' deep appreciation for the creative process and his belief in the importance of acknowledging the contributions of every team member. Chapter 13, Building the Mac. The journey is the reward. To no surprise, Jobs was extremely uh, and a competitive person, even within his own company. After being removed from the Lisa project, Jobs was determined that the Macintosh would be released before the Lisa. Despite the fact that the Mac was clearly superior to Lisa, Jobs refused to make the Mac compatible with Lisa's architecture, not just out of rivalry or revenge, but because it was a better iteration of what he believed was important in a product. Although the Lisa was released a year before the Mac, it was ultimately a failure. Meanwhile, anticipation for the Mac grew, with even the Time magazine featuring a behind-the-scenes look at the project. Jobs was convinced that he would be named the 1982's Year Man of the Year, but the honor went to the Apple computer itself, along with the scathing critique Jobs' leadership style at Apple. Chapter 14, Enter Scully, The Pepsi Challenge. Chapter 14 tells the tale of Steve Jobs and how he persuaded John Scully, the former president of PepsiCo, to assume the role of CEO at Apple. At first, Scully was reluctant to join Apple, but Jobs' power of persuasion ultimately won him over. A famous quote that's gone down in history is, do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life or come with me to change the world? Jobs and Scully became very close and they seemed to share an almost telepathic connection or finishing other, each other's sentences and anticipating each other's thoughts and moves. Despite their initial rapport, their relationship was not destined to last. As they worked together, the two men began to clash for various reasons, including the price of the Macintosh computer. Initially, Jobs had hoped to sell the Mac for $19.95, but Scully's push for a significant marketing budget forced the price to be $24.95. In hindsight, Jobs believed that this decision paved the way for the Microsoft to dominate the market for years to come. And despite their disagreements, Jobs and Scully's relationship was an essential part of Apple's history, illustrating the complex dynamics that often exist between a visionary founder and a seasoned executive. Chapter 15 the launch, a dent in the universe. In the lead up to the Macintosh launch, Apple was facing fierce competition from IBM in the personal computer market. 
Job recognized the need for a remarkable advertising campaign that would capture people's attention. To achieve this, he hired Ridley Scott, an English film director and producer, best known for directing films in science fiction and historical drama, to create the iconic 1984 television commercial, which positioned the Mac as the computer of choice for young rebels who rejected uh, oppressive control. The commercial aired in the 1984 Super Bowl and became an instant sensation, widely regarded as one of the greatest TV commercials of all time. The success of the Mac upon its release was largely due to many, uh, believe, as the impact of the 1984 commercial. Chapter 16, Gates and Jobs, When Orbits Intersect. This chapter draws on the contrast between Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, who may seem similar on the surface due to the shared background in the tech industry and being born on the same year. However, they differ fundamentally in terms of their philosophy and approach. Jobs embraced the Eastern spirituality and lived a rebellious lifestyle as a hippie during his teenage years. And on the other hand, Gates was raised by wealthy parents and an attorney in Seattle and attended a prominent private school. Gates was gifted at coding and had a timid, really geeky personality, while Jobs was intuitive, intense, and often very rude. Although their business relationship began with Microsoft writing software for the Macintosh, Jobs and Gates eventually became rivals when Gates announced the launch of Windows, which Jobs saw as a complete ripoff to the Mac operating system. Gates argued that both the Macintosh and Windows had both borrowed from heavily from Xerox. This perceived portrayal uh, angered Jobs, and he still has never got over it. Chapter 17, Icarus. What goes up? Following the launch of the Macintosh, it initially received positive attention in the industry but sales eventually and gradually declined due to its sluggish performance and lack of power. As a result, Jobs became increasingly frustrated and started to behave erratically, leading to the resignation of many employees. Even John Scully, who, John's, who Jobs had a close relationship with, eventually decided it was time for Apple to move on with Jobs, a decision that was ultimately approved by the Apple board, and Jobs felt understandably betrayed by his own company once again, and after being forced to leave the company that he had built. Chapter 18, Prometheus Unbound. After leaving Apple or being removed from Apple, Jobs started a new company called Next. He invested his own money in the venture and convinced many former Apple employees to join him. The company's target audience was colleges and universities, and Jobs was once again consumed with the design and aesthetic elements of the product, including the logo and shape. Despite his passion and attention to detail, Next was a commercial and uh, utter failure as its computers failed to gain traction in the marketplace. Chapter 19, Pixar, Technology Meets Art. During his tenure at Next, Jobs developed an interest in acquiring the animation division of George Lucas's company, Lucasfilm. Eventually, Jobs bought a 70% stake in the company for $10 million, primarily due to its computers. However, Jobs became increasingly intrigued with the animation content the company was producing. Although the computers at Pixar could not be brought to market, Jobs continued to invest in Pixar's animation division, which combined computer technology with artistry. In 1988, after pouring $50 million into the company, Pixar's Tin Toy won the Academy Award for Best Animated Short Film. Chapter 20, A Regular Guy, Love is Just a Four-Letter Word. Chapter 20 delves into Jobs' personal life, shedding light on his romantic affairs with notable women such as Joanne Bays and Jennifer Egan. Isaacson also recounts Jobs' journey to connect with his biological mother, Joanne Scheibel, now known as Joanna Simpson, 
after the passing of his own adoptive mother, Claire, in 1986. Their meeting at the St. Regis Hotel lobby revealed that Jobs had a half-sister named Mona, an emerging writer in New York. Additionally, Isaacson explores the turbulent relationship between Jobs and his daughter Lisa, which often resembled a roller coaster ride with long periods of silence and following uh, major arguments and disagreements. Chapter 21 Family Man at Home with the Jobs Clan. In 1989, Jobs met Lorraine Powell, who would become his future wife, during a guest lecture at the Stanford Business School. They soon became a couple and got married in a small ceremony in Yosemite National Park in 1991. After Lorraine became pregnant during their first vacation together in Hawaii, both shared an interest in natural foods, and she later started her own health food company called Terravero. They lived together in Palo Alto and had three children, Reed, Aaron, and Eve. However, Jobs was reportedly distant with his daughters, and his relationship with Lisa remained strained even after she moved in with Jobs and Lorraine during her eighth grade year until she left for college at Harvard. Lisa's move was prompted by her teachers reaching out to Jobs about issues at her mother's house. Chapter 22, Toy Story, Buzz and Woody to the Rescue. Chapter 22 recounts the story how Pixar and Disney came together to produce Toy Story, which marked the beginning of Pixar's phenomenal success in the entertainment industry. The head of Pixar, John Lasseter, pitched the idea of Toy Story to Disney, which was to distribute the movie. Toy Story is about toys that exist only to be played with and are afraid of being discarded in favor of newer toys. When Toy Story became a commercial success, Jobs used the money to negotiate a new deal with Disney, leading to a partnership that still exists today. Chapter 23. What a rough beast. It's our come round at last. By the mid-1990s, Jobs found some happiness in his personal life with his new family and Pixar's success in the movie industry. Although... He was still disappointed in the back of his mind with the lack of progress in the personal computer industry. During this time, Apple's stock prices were declining, and after John Scully's departure, Jobs returned to Apple as an advisory role to the CEO uh, as inter at interim. This move was an attempt to revive Apple's performance and was significant as it marked Jobs' return to the company that he once co-founded. Additionally, in this move, Apple also acquired Next, the computer company that Jobs had founded after leaving Apple. Chapter 24, The Restoration, The Loser Now Will Be Later to Win. After Jobs returned to Apple in an advisory role, he brought in several trusted colleagues from Next into senior positions of the company. Oracle founder Larry Ellison offered to buy Apple and install Jobs as CEO, but Jobs declined the offer. Despite being asked to replace Gil Emilio, Jobs also refused to take on the role of CEO himself. As Jobs gained more influence at Apple, he eventually negotiated a deal with Microsoft that allowed the company to continue developing the Mac while receiving non-voting shares. This agreement ultimately ended a litigation battle and instantly increased Apple's value as a company. Chapter 25. Think Different. Jobs as the iCEO. As the informal leader of Apple, Jobs decided it was time to revive the company by launching an audacious advertising campaign. The outcome was a renowned Think Different campaign, which emphasized Apple as a company for rebels and outsiders, much like their previous 1984 ad. Jobs made it a complete priority to produce fewer projects with a more concentrated effort on making exceptional products. According to Isaacson, and I quote, the ability to focus saved Apple. 
Jobs' commitment to his higher standard of work ethic resulted in Apple gradually regaining its value in shares as momentum started to shift back in their favor. Chapter 26, Design Principles, The Studio of Jobs and Ive. The aesthetic principles that shape Jobs' vision for Apple are a central theme of this book. And he also worked closely with designer Johnny Ive. Jobs was dedicated to ensuring that Apple's products reflected their essence through perfect, simple design, something that Johnny shared. This, this obsession with design led them to develop numerous design patents for Apple products, including packaging of all things. Chapter 27, the iMac. Hello again. The collaboration between Jobs and Johnny Ive resulted in the iMac, which revolutionized the computer industry with its distinctive blue translucent case designed for everyday users at an affordable price, $1,200. The iMac redefined what the computer could look like. Jobs was meticulous in his attention at every single detail of the design, including the decision between a CD tray or slot. The iMac was released in 1998 and became the fastest selling computer in Apple's history of all time. Chapter 28, CEO, so crazy after all these years. With the successful launches of the iMac and the Think Different ad campaigns, Jobs proved that he was a master in both business strategy and creative innovation. His achievements as an advisor eventually earned him the position of CEO again at Apple, a move that was welcomed by Apple enthusiasts all around the world. Jobs had previously taken only a token salary of $1, but now received $20 million or 20 million stock options as his compensation. Chapter 29, Apple Stores, Genius Bars, and Sienna Sandstone. Fascinated with enhancing the customer experience, Jobs envisioned a retail space that exclusively offered Apple products. In 2001, a prototype was built in Virginia, and soon after, Apple stores began appearing everywhere. By 2004, these stores were attracting on average 5,000 visitors per week. Apple stores were unprecedented tech retail stores that showcased the distinctiveness of the company's own unique products, and this ex exemplified Jobs' ingenious approach to his remarkable ability to provide customers with an experience that they didn't even realize that they desired. Chapter 30, The Digital Hub from iTunes to the iPod. During the early 2000s, while many were burning music onto their blank CDs, Jobs was convinced that the music industry would play a significant role in functionality of computers. This prompted him to develop iTunes and subsequently the iPod, a groundbreaking portable music player that marked the start of Apple's dominance in the tech industry. Jobs believed that since the iPod was connected to the iMac, more iPod sales would eventually lead to more iMac purchases. The iPod's contribution to design and functionality set it apart from all of its competitors, and as Jobs notes, when unboxing an iPod, its sheer beauty was radiant. Chapter 31, The iTunes Store, Pied Piper. As the iPod achieved immense commercial success, Jobs recognized the need for the iTunes Store, provided customers a legitimate and convenient way to purchase music by circumventing traditional buying methods. Major record company executives were struggling to counteract piracy and illegal downloads, so they sought help from Apple, and from Jobs in particular. He proposed a more integrated platform for music purchasing, which featured 99-cent downloads for individual songs. The introduction of iTunes transformed the music industry as it helped combat piracy and saved it from further decline. 
Within its first year, the iTunes Store sold over a staggering 70 million songs, demonstrating its game-changing impact. Chapter 32, Music Man, the soundtrack of his life. Chapter 32 highlights his job's personal passion for music, and particularly his love for Bob Dylan and the Beatles. His enthusiasm for Dylan's music led to the creation of an offer for all of Dylan's recorded songs priced at $199. Dylan was eventually featured in an iPod commercial to promote his album, Modern Times. Jobs was also able and determined to bring the Beatles' music to iTunes, which eventually happened. In addition, Apple collaborated with U2 to promote their album, How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb, and released a special iPod to coincide with their album's launch. Chapter 33, Pixar's Friends and Foes. The chapter delves into Jobs' effort to renegotiate Pixar's agreement with Disney. Under the New Deal, Disney would acquire Pixar, but Pixar would remain its independent identity. Upon the agreement completion, Jobs expressed his desire to create not only exceptional products, but also remarkable companies. He stated, and I quote, We preserve Pixar as a remarkable company, also aided Disney in remaining one. Ultimately, Disney's triumph contributed to Disney's ability to stay relevant in the industry. Chapter 34, 21st Century Max, Setting Apple Apart. In this chapter, we get a glimpse into Apple's signature minimalistic designs, exemplified by a clamshell computer laptop, consumer laptop, the Power Mac G4 Cube, Chapter 34. Although the G4Q, which was displayed in the Museum of Modern Art, did not sell as well as anticipated, Jobs persisted in pursuing unique and eye-catching designs. Despite all of the innovation in the design of other computers, Apple remained st steadfast in its commitment to aesthetic creativity, which mirrored Jobs' own values and vision. Chapter 35, Round 1, Memento Mari. During a routine urological exam in 2003, Jobs was informed that he had pancreatic cancer, and for nine months, he refused surgery and instead turned to alternative treatments such as organic foods, juice, bowl cleansing, and even consulting a psychic. However, he eventually came to the realization that surgery was necessary to save his life. In July of 2004, he finally underwent the surgery, only to discover that the cancer had spread, required him to undergo chemotherapy treatments, Nearly a year later, Jobs delivered a commencement speech at Stanford in 2005 with the assistance of Aaron Sorkin in writing it. After facing his own mortality, Jobs had a change of heart and became more compassionate towards his former rival, Bill Gates. Chapter 36, The iPhone, Three Revolutionary Products in One. After the immense success of the iPod, Jobs believed that the phone with a sleek, minimalistic design and touch Screen technology was the next best idea. Despite encountering obstacles after obstacles in the search for the best materials and a painful redesign towards the end of the process, the iPhone was eventually released in June of 2007, and by 2010, Apple had sold over 90 million iPhones and garnered over half of the profits in global cell phone market. Once again, Jobs had overseen the creation of a revolutionary product that would have profound impact on the world. Chapter 37, round two, the cancer recurs. Jobs had a recurrence in cancer in uh, 2008 and received a liver transplant in 2009, a risky procedure that nearly cost him his life. 
Despite his health struggles, Jobs remained fiercely dedicated to Apple, the company had built into a now a global powerhouse. Throughout his illness, rumors and speculation about his health circulated through the press, but the truth remained closely guarded. Following his recovery, Jobs' passion and sharpness persisted, and he continued to innovate and determined to release another groundbreaking product after the successes of the iPod and the iPhone. Chapter 38, The iPad, Into the Post-PC Era. The unveiling of the iPad in 2010 led to it being dubbed as the Jesus Tablet, as it had been a long-time passion project for Jobs. Apple had put the project on hold before releasing the iPhone actually in 2007, and despite some initial reservations and mixed reviews by people, Apple sold over a million iPads in the first month, followed by 15 million in the first nine months, making it the most successful consumer product launch in the history of the world. The iPad's multifunctionality was a significant feature that Jobs wanted to emphasize, so he personally oversaw the ad campaigns, and with the iPod, Jobs had transformed the music business. With the iPad and its app store, he began to transform all of media, from publishing to journalism, to movies and television, and everything else. Chapter 39, New Battles and Echoes of Old Ones. Shortly after the iPad's uh, first launch, Jobs expressed his frustration with Google's Android system, which he believed was a direct copy from the Apple's operating system. This perceived uh, betrayal hurt Jobs on a personal level, given that he had once mentored Google's founders. Jobs responded by filing a lawsuit alleging copyright infringement. Despite criticism, Jobs remained committed to his vision of a closed system designed exclusively for Apple devices to offer consumers an optimized and streamlined experience. Regardless of the controversy, Jobs remained passionate about what he cared about, such as a sense of the Beatles' music on the iTunes in the summer of 2010. Chapter 40, To Infinity, The Cloud, The Spaceship, and Beyond. Following the launch of the iPad 2, Jobs focused his attention on his two of his long-standing passion projects, the iCloud, which he saw as a central digital hub, and a new Apple campus that would eventually house over 12,000 employees. Despite his weakened physical state, Jobs remained dedicated to these projects and brought in his usual forcefulness and determination to see them through to completion. Chapter 41, Jobs had a strong desire to witness his son's high school graduation in June of 2010 following his cancer diagnosis. He felt elated as he watched his son receive his diploma and emailed Isaacson to express his happiness. Jobs later advised President Obama on the need for more engineers in the United States and outsourcing of manufacturing jobs to other countries. In the last few months of his life, Jobs battled with extreme physical uh, fatigue and had to eventually say goodbye to his colleagues and include uh, his resignation of CEO of Apple in 2011. Chapter 42, The Brightest Heaven of Invention. Isaacson concludes that Jobs' legacy is not only of the products that he created, but also the ideals he embodied, including the importance of creativity, innovation, and one's own passions. Though he was flawed in many ways, Jobs was a visionary who revolutionized multiple industries and changed the way we interact with technology. He will be remembered as one of the greatest business executives and leaders of all time. It will continue to inspire future generations with creativity, and determination to push boundaries of what is possible. And to end this episode, I'm going to leave with uh, quoting Jobs in his own words. My passion has been an enduring company 
where people were motivated to make great products. Everything else was secondary. Sure, it was great to make a profit because that was what has allowed you to make great products, but the products, not the profits, were the motivation. Scully flipped these priorities to where the goal was to make money. It's a subtle difference, but it ends up making everything. The people you hire, who gets promoted, you discuss and what you discuss in meetings. Some people say, give the customers what they want, but that's not my approach. Our job is to figure out what they're going to want before they do. I think Henry Ford once said, if I'd asked customers what they wanted, they would have told me a faster horse. People don't know what they want until you show it to them. That's why I never rely on market research. Our task is to read things that are not yet seen on the page. Edwin Land of Polaroid talked about the intersection of humanities and science. I like that intersection. There's something magical about that place. There are a lot of people innovating, and that's not the main distinction of my career. The reason Apple resonates with people is that there's a deep current of humanity in our innovation. I think great artists and great engineers are similar, and they both have a desire to express themselves. In fact, some of the best people working on the original Mac were poets and musicians on the side. In the 70s, computers became a way for people to express their creativity. Great artists like Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo were also great at science. Michelangelo knew a lot about how to quarry stone, not just how to be a sculptor. People pay us to integrate things for them because they don't have the time to think about this stuff 24-7. If you have an extreme passion for producing great products, it pushes you to be integrated, to connect your hardware and your software and your content management. You want to create new ground, so you have to do it yourself. If you want to allow your products to be open to other hardware or software, you have to give up some of your vision. At different times of the past, there were companies that exemplified Silicon Valley. It was Hewlett Packard for a long time. Then in the semiconductor area, it was Fairchild and Intel. I think that it was Apple for a while and then it faded. And then again today, I think it's Apple and Google. And a little more so Apple. I think Apple stood the test of time. It's been around for a while, but it's still at the cutting edge of what's going on. It's easy to throw stones at Microsoft. They've clearly fallen from their dominance. They've become mostly irrelevant. And yet I appreciate what they did and how hard it was. They were very good at business, the business side of things. They were never as ambitious product-wise as they should have been. Bill likes to portray himself as a man of product, but he's really not. He's a business person. Winning business was more important than making great products. He ended up the wealthiest guy around, and if that was his goal, then he achieved it. But it's never been my goal, and I wonder, in the end, if it was his goal. I admire him for the company he's built. It's impressive, and I've enjoyed working with him. He's bright and actually has a good sense of humor. But Microsoft will never have the humanities and liberal arts in its DNA. Even when they saw the Mac, they couldn't copy it well. They totally didn't get it. I have my own theory about why decline happens at companies like IBM or Microsoft. The company does a great job, innovates, becomes a monopoly or even close to in some field, and the quality of the product becomes less important. The company starts valuing great salesmen because they're the ones who can move the needle on revenues, not the product engineers or designers. The salespeople end up running the company. John Akers at IBM was smart, eloquent, and a fantastic salesperson, but he didn't know anything about product. The same thing happened at Xerox. When the sales guys ran the company, the 
product guys don't matter as much and a lot of them just turn off. It happened to Apple when Scully came in, which is my fault, and it happened when Balmer took over Microsoft. Apple was lucky and it rebounded, but I don't think it'll change up Microsoft as long as Balmer is running it. I hate it when people call themselves entrepreneurs, when what they're trying to do is launch a startup and then sell, go public, so they can cash in and move on. They're unwilling to do the work it takes to build a real company, which is the hardest work in business. That's how you really can make a contribution to add to the legacy of those who went before. You want to build a company that will stand, the, stand for something a generation or two from now. That's what Walt Disney did. That's what Hewlett Packard and the people who at Intel. That's what Walt Disney did and Hewlett Packard and the people who built Intel did. They created a company to last, not just make money. And that's what I want Apple to be. I don't think I run roughshod over people, but if something sucks, I tell it to their face. It's my job to be honest. I know what I'm talking about and I usually turn out to be right. That's the culture I tried to create. We are brutally honest with each other and anyone can tell me they think I'm full of shit and I can tell them the exact same. And we've had some rip-roaring arguments. We were yelling at each other and some of the best times I've ever had. I feel totally comfortable saying, Ron, that store looks like shit in front of everyone else. Or I might say, God, we really fucked up on the engineering side of this in front of the person that's responsible for it. That's the ante for being in the room. You've got to be able to be super honest. Maybe there's a better way, a gentleman's club where we all wear ties and speak in brand of language and velvet code words. But I don't know that way because I'm a middle-class man from California. I was hard on people sometimes, probably harder than I needed to be. I remember the time when Reed was six years old coming from home and I had just fired someone that day. And I imagined what it was like for that person to tell his family and his young son that he had lost his job. It was hard, but somebody's got to do it. I figured that it's always my job to make sure that the team was excellent. And if I didn't do it, nobody was going to. You always have to keep pushing to innovate. Dylan could have sung protest songs forever and probably made a lot of money, but he didn't. He had to move on. And when he did, by going electric in 1965, he alienated a lot of people. His 1966 Europe tour was his greatest. He would come on, do a set of acoustic guitar, and the audiences loved him. Then he brought out what became the band. And they would do it all in an electric set, and the audience sometimes booed. There was a point where he was... Uh, about to sing like a Rolling Stone and someone from the audience yells, Judas. And then Dylan says, play it fucking loud. And they did. The Beatles were the same way. They kept evolving, moving, refining their art. That's what I've always tried to do. Keep moving. Otherwise, as Dylan says, if you're not busy being born, you're busy dying. What drove me? I think the most creative people want to express appreciation for being able to take advantage of the work that's been done by others before us. I didn't invent the language or mathematics I use. I make a little of my own food and none of my own clothes. Everything I do depends on members of our species and on the shoulders that we stand on. And a lot of us want to contribute something back to our species and add something to the flow. It's about trying to express something in only a way few of us know how, because we can't write Bob Dylan songs or Tom Stoppard plays. We try to use the talents we do have to express our deep feelings, to show our appreciation to all the contributions that came before us, 
and to add something to that flow. That's what's driven me. That's the end of this book. And this is the end of uh, Steve Jobs. I think this was one of my favorite books I've read. And uh, although this is probably going to be my longest episode yet, I had to cut out so many phenomenal stories and many little intricate details across the whole story and uh, Jobs' life that Isaacson had put in his book. So I implore people to go back and read through this book because there's gold nuggets of information in every chapter that I couldn't talk about. Otherwise, this podcast might have been eight hours long. But um, with that, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode.